Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and the author of How to Be a Grown-Up, The Sisterhood, and Insatiable, A Love Story for Greedy Girls. I'll be appearing at some events and festivals, including the EA Festival on August 1st and Henley Literary Festival this October, dates to be confirmed. I had a wonderful time at the Bath Festival with Caleb, Azuma Nelson, and I understand our conversation will be available soon as a podcast. I'll be sharing it with you as soon as I can. It's so moving and magical to be meeting readers and writers at real-life events. Thank you so much to everyone who's been able to show their support. Now, on to today's guest. This is a writer I feel as though I've loved all my life, even though I'm relatively new to her wonderful novels. Catherine Heine is an author I was introduced to through this podcast. Many guests are in love with her novel, Standard Deviation, and her short story collection, Single, Carefree, Mellow. Her new novel, Early Morning Riser, is prime Heine. Tender, love-filled, achingly bittersweet, wickedly perceptive, and most of all, bitingly and brilliantly funny. We talked about our borderline obsessive love for Laurie Colwyn, Nigella's No Chan Ice Cream, and why your new favourite author should be Alice Thomas Ellis. I don't normally do this, but um, by just flinging an author at you, but but Laurie Colwyn, other than your beautiful, wonderful, brilliant books, what else? What else can I read? Given Laurie Colwyn's work is is finite, and I need more. There's a British author named. Um... Alice Thomas Ellis. I don't know if you've ever read her. She wrote The Other Side of the Fire and um, The Summer House. And she's a lot like Colwyn, I think. And when I first met my husband, he's British, I'm American, he told me that I should read an author named Alice Thomas Cooper. And I was like, do you know who Alice Cooper is? And so I knew he was close and I went to the library. And so I discovered her and she's really, really funny and really great. And and like Colwyn, I think she only wrote five books and it'll make you really sad that there aren't more. Oh, spookily. Oh, no, I just read um, Unexplained Laughter, which is the only one oh! of hers that I've read. That's a really good one. Well, Producer Dale bought it and... 
He couldn't work out why. He was like, someone must have recommended this. There must be a reason why. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was something you said online when we were stalking you. I don't know. It could have been, yeah. But she made me think a little bit of Cold Comfort Farm. I love in that book that Lydia is such a dick, but such an adorable one. You really warm to her sort of misanthropy ways. And I like the way that she talks about um, food and what they're eating. Even if it's not good, you sort of have to hear about it. I really like that. But just on an individual sort of sentence by sentence, she's really funny. Really, really good. I was comfort reading home cooking and reading Laurie Colwyn on English food and British food and the detail where I don't think it's her husband. I think it's a friend who she is British and visiting and she persuades him to bring her back a pint of cream which he has to get through customs but also this idea of high pheasant and um, Lydia's pheasant and gosh who is the other um, is it Betty her it's Betty dreadful colleague and um, the, the fights about the pheasant and the pheasant being plucked and how high the pheasant must get before eating I am I am a British person I've I've never plucked my own pheasant. I think I've possibly eaten it in a restaurant. I've never had it at all. But there's lots of Laurie Colwyn recipes I've never had. You sort of don't read her so much for the recipes as for the attitude about food and cooking. I understand that Nigella Lawson is a great fan. And I know that it's a very different sort of writing in a way. But what I love about Nigella... And what I also love so much about Colwyn, and she is Nigella, isn't she? Nigella, and you don't even say Nigella Lawson. Nigella's like Beyonce. Um, I know. There's an, a, a glee in corners being cut. But just back to Nigella briefly, my stepdaughter gave me um, Feast, the Nigella book, when my children were like two and four, and I barely had time to read. And every day I would read a single recipe from Feast. And I think they're almost like poems or short stories because they're so polished and so well-written. She just, she's she's one of my favorite food writers ever. She's so talented. Are there any particular recipes in that book that really struck you or stayed with you when you thought, one day I will be able to be in a kitchen for more than five minutes at a time. And this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> I make her pavlova recipe whenever I'm called on to make a dessert for any reason. Just every Nigella recipe is really, really good. And it's good in, in that she always tells you where it came from and whether it's going to be good or, or easy or hard to make. I don't know. Once again, it's not even about the recipes so much as just the attitude. That she starts with a story and then makes room for your story too. Mm -hmm. And there's the sense of she's generous and she gives you an arc. And this is whatever you're doing, this will this will uplift you. I think often uh, the thing of hers that I make the most is probably her no churn ice cream, where I don't know whether condensed milk do you know it by that name? Or is it one of those things like heavy cream where you've got a much better, more glamorous name for it? No, it's, it's called the same thing here. But it's the condensed milk and double double cream or possibly heavy cream. Um, some sort of alcohol, which I believe must 
lower the freezing temperature, I think. And so it comes out with the consistency of sort oh. of smooth, cool, scoopable butter. I'm going to go make that. Well, you can't believe. I mean, all, all that requires of a person is, is time, really. And it's not even like, a, you know, normally with ice cream, you've got to get it and batter it and churn it and, and leave it. And you just can't believe something so delicious and so thrilling could come from what an idiot like me can fling in a bowl and leave. That's the beauty of sort of all Nigella recipes and the fact that she makes roast chicken all the time because it's like the easiest thing to make. I don't know. She's she's great. But my parents had this ice cream maker that even though it wasn't a hand ice cream maker, it seemed to be like it had to run for like 12 hours before we had ice cream. It's a lot of work. Which other writers do you think are very good at food? Not necessarily delicious food, but that would be nice. Well, Heartburn is one of my favourite novels ever. And even though the food in that is like beside the point, sort of, I've made all those recipes just because I want to be as much like Nora Ephron in every possible way. So if I'm cooking the things she cooks, then I feel a little bit like her, which is the beauty of heartburn is that you want to be Nora Ephron. And isn't it extraordinary that being cheated on should be an aspirational thing? I was um, the end of my 20s sent to group therapy for anxiety and put in a room with lots of other anxious people and it didn't really work but I stuck with it for a lot longer than I think I otherwise might have done because of the group therapy in heartburn. Oh yeah. So literally every time I talk about heartburn when I'm done talking about it I go reread it. I literally read it like four times a year. It never gets old. Does it surprise you? Do you come to it with a different mood or did details leap out that otherwise hadn't or is it is it just being in the company of a a dear dear friend I think it's more the company of a dear dear friend but I also think it's one of those books that when you read it at different stages of your life you take different things from it I mean maybe that's all books but heartburn seems specifically that way to me especially because She's the narrator of Heartburn is from New York, but living in Washington, D.C., which I've lived in D.C. and I've lived in New York. And so sort of wherever wherever I'm living, it seems to give me a new take on it. I love Heartburn so much. There's some blurring because I love Nora Ephron's essays as to mm-hmm. what's from Heartburn and what's from an essay. And I love those details about the... Um, uh, getting that commuter plane sort of between New York and D.C. And is that there was a paper that... It's not, I don't think it's the New York Post, but it's something that's sort of smart but a little gossipy and it's the perfect, kind of the exact length of the plane ride. Oh, is that in Heartburn? It might not be in Heartburn. It might be... Oh, it might be in an essay. It might be something that I've kind of transposed, a, a detail that I've added. I think my favourite, even more than Heartburn, the Nora Ephron piece that I've reread and read the most, it's probably the most comfort, is an essay she wrote called A Star is Born. And it's about how she nearly gets this kind of, I don't know if she's going to be like an anchor woman, but a big TV job at CBS. And she is beaten by this woman, but also she gets taken out for some very smart lunches when she's being wooed for this job. And 
a rice pudding is mentioned and it's the sort of perfect ratio of cinnamon to nutmeg oh. the really plump sultanas and that's I think something that I I've added to heartburn when it's not there I know heartburn is all about the mashed potatoes well interestingly my husband really doesn't like rice pudding he says it reminds him of like school lunches but I love rice pudding I think I make Nigella's rice pudding because there isn't one yeah she leaves it out of heartburn yeah I never I never had it as a child I only discovered it in adulthood yeah I think maybe the American equivalent of rice pudding is tapioca people have really severe traumatizing tapioca memories from childhood. So what we need now is a food writer who can regenerate, not regenerate tapioca, that sounds like horrible, horrible science fiction. <laughs> Rebrand it. Make, it, make it delicious and new. I don't think I've read many books that are set in and around Washington DC and Virginia. Oh, Mislaid by Nell Zink. I think that might have been set in Virginia. But are there any DC or DC adjacent books that you love? Heartburn is just so far ahead in every category of that. I guess Silence of the Lambs kind of takes place in D.C. because of the FBI headquarters and, and the museum where they go to interview the insect experts. I've never um, actually read that. Did you enjoy it? Did you read the book before you saw the movie? I did. It's one of my favorite books. Oh, really? When did you read it? I read it when it first came out and I read the prequel to it, which is called Red Dragon. And um, they're both just like electrifying books and they're so beautifully written and they're smart and they teach you stuff and they take your breath away. And I was giving some interview where they asked me what my comfort reading was and I said Silence of the Lambs and it made me sound like a budding serial killer. But um, it really is. Oh, go read them. They're so good. I have never heard it described as a comfort read before. That's magnificent. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm sure everybody... I think it was not in an interview. I think it was an, at an event and everybody was just like, okay, I would hate to think what she reads, what she finds disturbing after that. Oh, that's fabulous. What do you find disturbing? What are your... Are there any books that you think of maybe the opposite of a comfort read if there is such a thing but you're still glad you read them I don't know for me it's really the writing as long as the writing is top-notch I I'm along for the ride no matter what they're talking about I really like Stephen King so I guess my my disturbance threshold is pretty high I do remember when I first read Carrie and you know what I was expecting sort of all out horror and I think I read it after I saw the film and I would have been a, a teenager and just really being struck by how it felt very kind of sophisticated but very knowing and he's really made some efforts to get inside the head of a teenage girl <laughs> I wasn't expecting this well I just think he has enormous confidence as a writer and I think he was something like 22 when he wrote Carrie and that's just really intimidating to me as a writer I think you know the best authors like Stephen King and Elmore Leonard and Kate Atkinson and I mean so many great writers it's the confidence um and I think that's a big thing with Laurie Colwin too is is their books are interesting 
but they have the confidence to know that you're going to find them interesting. And so they don't sort of pull out all the stops in the first chapter. I think that's a really interesting point. And the books that I love the most are often the quietest. A small event can be utterly compelling. You've not got to wheel out sort of fireworks and explosions and, you know, the literal and figurative big guns. I suppose like um, Dorothy Parker and her short stories you feel as though you're you're eavesdropping or there's um, a story I think about all the time and it's just a series of diaries and it's this spoiled nightmare woman in Manhattan and she's constantly complaining about her manicurist coming around and getting the wrong shade but the real story is that one of her set this man who's sort of out being wild and entertaining and having a high old time of things, a slowly, or not even that slowly really, having a nervous breakdown. And she's so self-absorbed and monstrous that you're sort of just seeing glimpses of this through her. Like, oh yes, you know, he's having a lovely time and everything's fine and she's just upset about the creased dress. I want to read it. But can we go back to what you were saying about like you think of this story every day? Because I think that's like the mark of a great piece of writing is is how often you think about it. And actually during lockdown, my friend Patrick wrote this short story about how, I mean, it wasn't about this, but part of it referred to how the narrator gets in the shower and every day he shampoos and then washes his face and then washes his armpits and then, you know, like this whole routine and it never varies. And there's a part where he says like the the backs of his legs have not been intentionally washed in 20 years. And I think of that every day when I get in the shower now. I'm like, wow, I really never switch it up. I never do things out of order. <laughs> That's such a good observation and something that is so clearly drawn from life. I'm sure Patrick oh. now, if he would say, oh, no, no, I wash my calves every single day. Would anyone believe him? Not a chance. Yeah. <laughs> is this something that um, that listeners can read? His name is Patrick Walsey. And um, he doesn't have a book, but he's published a few things online. So you can Google him and, and that story which of course I can't recall the title of, might be on there. But everything that he writes is very funny and memorable. And um, he wrote a novel about where the character's mother had dementia and he wishes that dementia worked differently so that his mother could forget what an asshole he was as a teenager and appreciate what he is as a grown man. And I'd never thought that before. And that was just profoundly interesting to me. That's another thing that I think about all the time. I know in your novels, the sort of the subject of, you know, who we are neurologically, that that comes up and that are our, our brains our character or is character separate? I love the way that you explore that. I grew up in the 70s and I think there was, it was a very tolerant time. And I think I a lot of people were just, you know, we thought they were quirky, where now I look back at them and I'm like, wow, there was really a lot more going on there. So I like to write about flawed characters. I think they're so much more relatable. And it's hard when I start loving my characters and I, I want them to make only good decisions, but 
that's not how life works, and that would be really boring to read about. Your quirkier characters, you know, they're every bit as human and vulnerable and fully realised as everyone else in this book. There, no, no one has turned up to sort of teach everyone the true meaning of Christmas. You know, I just adored Jane. Her flaws are present. Her, I don't think her flaws are just sort of absolved by what she encounters. I'm also very wary of them, of spoiler, spoilers for, for people listening. But the way we explore neurodiversity, I guess, in fiction and elsewhere, I think it's not always done in a sensitive way or a, a three-dimensional way. And it is such a, a pleasure and it is so resonant to see it done so. Well, it was very, very important to me when writing Early Morning Riser that Jimmy who has an intellectual disability, be a complex person and a kind and decent man and worthy of love and worthy of being able to add things to Jane's life and that he wouldn't just be defined by his his intellectual disability. It's very, very important to me. And I think as well that Jimmy is not tragic he belongs in in the universe of the town almost more than Jane does really as a reader you know he welcomes you not the other way around I think oh true but I also think that um it's part of small town life and that everybody looks out for Jimmy Mm. but I also think that Jimmy is capable of more than anybody knows because he's never challenged everybody looks out for him I think there are a lot of points in Jimmy's life where he could have been encouraged to be more independent but it was a small town and they see things a certain way and you know he's just labeled as slow learning and it gets left at that which I think is true for people with learning disabilities all through the ages you know this whole thing of like intervention and compensation is is a really new topic in history and I think it's so exciting speaking to any author about their work because all of these characters, you know, live so far sort of beyond the page. Do you have, as you write, do you have questions about who these people are that you kind of, you know, come to resolve in the writing? Or do you find that if you start inquiring about characters that when they arrive, you know more about them than, you know, they sort of initially reveal? Yeah, they they tend to be pretty um, fully formed when I think of them. But like the writing the first part of a novel is like, you know, a train sort of slowly gathering speed. And, you know, in the second or the last third of the book, I know the characters so well that basically they talk and I just write it down. Um, but in the beginning, trying to figure out how they would express themselves and I mean, I definitely hear dialogue when I'm writing it. But it was interesting because um, I wrote maybe two thirds of the book when I was here in Bethesda. And then we went to our summer house in Boyne City. And that was where I finished the book. And I remember getting there and unpacking the car and thinking like, will I see Jane here? Is she here yet? And it was such a strong sense that she was there which, you know, makes me sound totally bonkers, but writing a book and being in the whole immersive 
process of it, it's it's the most the most encompassing feeling in the world. And maybe, you know, when you talked about writers like Stephen King and that sort of supreme confidence, maybe that's where some of that confidence comes from, is sort of, you know, giving yourself over to it, almost like religious mania and saying, I'm going to sit and wait and hope and listen. This is an act of listening and please come, <laughs> please talk to me. Yeah, there's, well, there's definitely, I think, when you're writing a sense that you're your brain sometimes supplies things to you, even though it's clear that you're in charge of your brain. There does sometimes seem a sense of like, this just occurred to me, and a sort of gratitude for your brain giving you whatever little tidbit that was. And actually, I've told the story before, but it's very funny. While I was writing, there's a character in Early Morning Riser called Gary who's really sort of bewildered and unobservant. And I wanted him to have a health scare, but to, for it not to be serious, and maybe it be even something that Gary himself brought on by his unobservant nature. So I'm writing that very part of the book, and my husband goes to play squash, and he sends me a text saying that his squash partner started having blurred vision and dizziness, and they had to go to the ER. And then he texted me from the ER and said the blurred vision and the dizziness were caused because instead of wearing his squash goggles, his squash partner was wearing his wife's bifocals. <laughs> and it was so wonderful. I just put it right in the book. I really didn't have to change anything. So sometimes it seems like the whole world is writing the book with you. It's helping you. It's such a, I don't know, sort of mystical experience. I can't believe I just said mystical. I'm not even sure what that means. It's such a, it's such an enthusiastic process. It's more collaborative than anyone can ever know. Oh, that's so smart. I want to re-record now and I'll say that. I'll <laughs> that I said it. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, we can get producer Dale to work some audio <laughs> magic, I'm sure. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We'll be back to Catherine soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Noah's Ark by former guest Barbara Trepido. This is the story of artistic, chaotic, slobby, sexy Ali and the people who populate her world. Her solemn, intense nine-year-old daughter, her pompous ex, and lusty, practical Noah who turns up and seduces her and the reader's. I don't know why this book isn't better known. It's fiercely funny, earthy, warm and smart. Trepido treads the line between comedy and tragedy more adroitly than any other writer I can think of. Noah's Ark by Barbara Trepido is published by Bloomsbury and out now. Now, back to Catherine. I want to ask whether your reading changed much at all over the last year and if you found you were reading more or less or differently? During the original lockdown of a year ago in March, um, I could only, I was so stressed, I could only read the Little House on the Prairie books. It's like anything less familiar than that or more complicated, I just, I wasn't up for. Um, but I generally read Little House in the Prairie books like once a year anyway, so it's maybe not so dire as it sounds. And then I read um, a memoir by Lacey Crawford called Notes on a Silencing. And it was so beautiful and haunting and powerful. And that sort of woke me out of my Little House rut and then I was open to reading new authors again and I read Exciting Times by Nisha Dolan which is so funny and made me laugh out loud so many times and then I read The Idiot by Alif Batuman I'm never sure how to say her name and that that book was I just didn't want it to end it was so funny and and so so witty and sort of deceptively simple. I'm so grateful to any book that makes me laugh out loud. That's just like the best gift a book could ever give you. I love the idiot. I don't know what I did with my copy, but that's a book that I feel here certainly is is underread. Um, but can you tell me more about that memoir? Because I haven't heard of it and I'm intrigued. It's called Notes on a Silencing. Yeah, and it's about the author's sexual assault at a boarding school and how the school went to great lengths to basically cover it up. I mean, the story is so powerful any way you look at it, but the writing just takes it to this whole other level of of beauty and fierceness. And um, as soon as I read finished reading it, I fangirled all over Lacey's Facebook page and she was very nice to like let me do that and not you know report me for stalking <laughs> you should definitely read it it's so so good and I I also read In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado <gasps> I just bought that it's that? under my bed top of my, my so pile. good and it's it's funny 
when you wouldn't expect it to be. I mean, it's it's powerful and it's amazing and so creatively told. And so it's one of those books that as you read it, you know, you say to your husband, like, let me just tell you this part. And by the end, you've told him the whole book. And I also, Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls by Nina Aron. Did you read that? I've not read that. It's about um, a memoir about her many years long relationship with a heroin addict and how she gave up her, you know, marriage and her financial stability and her self-esteem in order to stay in a relationship with him. And it's all about like codependent relationships. And the best part is that when, when the book is over, you can sit down and like go through every couple, you know, and decide whether they have a codependent relationship or not. Um, but that's also a really powerful, really, really beautifully written book. I am a, a fiend for addiction memoirs, but... Um, oh, then you have to read it. To read about the person who is, you know, so close to it. But um, that sounds really compelling. And I am not so evolved that I wouldn't analyse every couple that I knew. <laughs> In fiction, I guess, um, who are who leap to mind as relationship goals and who are the very opposite? There was another book I read this year, although it was a couple of years old, called um, True Things About Me by Deborah K. Davies, where this woman has a really ill-advised relationship with um, like basically an ex-convict. And it's really funny but to watch her sort of spiral down this this terrible relationship is is fascinating to me. Wow, what other relationships? I really can't talk about Bridget Jones's diary enough or emphasize the effect it had on me and my writing or like it's in a, it's it's like sacred to me. It belongs in its own private box in literary history. When did you meet it? Or her? <laughs> My husband and I moved to London in 1997. And the first two books I read were Bridget Jones' Diary and High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. And I thought England was like the greatest place in the world. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm gonna love living here. Um, so I was just, I was 29. And I remember I already, you know, was working as a writer and wanted to be a writer. But both of those books just really broke open the idea for me that you can write a, a comic novel and it can also have serious points and it can affect people and people can learn from it. That that a comic novel can be everything a serious novel is at the same time. And I because I love Bridget Jones and I love High Fidelity, but Bridget Jones is a an annual read for me, at least, yeah. and has been for a long time. I was living in the middle of nowhere in, in rural Dorset as sort of very bored teenager reading about Bridget going to 192 and things. And it was, it was my roadmap for sort of a fantasy London life. Also, it was really radical. And I know that people say, oh, Bridget, so reductive, obsesses over men and her weight. I'm like, no, actually, she was the first 
exciting grown-up I met in a book and she worked in an office and she had this cool little flat in London and she went out and she had a lovely time and she wasn't she wasn't a wife and she wasn't a mother. Well, I think actually what affected me about it the first time I read it is that it is all about, like, she's worried about her weight and her diet and her friends, and yet it reads like a thriller. It's completely unputdownable. I mean, I think the first time I read it, I basically did nothing else for 24 hours but read it. So I think maybe that's one of the reasons it was so profound to me or profoundly inspiring was like, wow, it's all about the writing. It really doesn't matter as long as you're writing well and you're saying true things that people maybe hadn't thought of before. And the audacity was thrilling. Again, if I don't think of this every day, I think of it every week. There's a diary entry where she's really cross because she's read two things in the papers and in the Times. It said, is this the end of the dining room? And in the Telegraph, it says, suddenly there are more dining rooms everywhere. <laughs> and that's and things like watching the way she observes her her married friends and friends with children sort of, you know, competitive parenting and there's a bit she talks about just the hell of going shopping and in a way it was the first woman that I met in a book to say there is this perfect person that I will be one day and I am so far from that and that's probably not that much fun anyway. I I remember reading the shopping trip entry and and about like she buys stuff at Marks and Spencer because you don't have to try it on but then you have to return it and I just remember my brain basically being on fire because I was like she's describing me that's what I always do and it's so stupid and I still can't stop doing I really love that you can see the Bridget that Jane has inherited in that the first you know the party that Jane plans and the scarves on the lamps catching fire. Dinner parties gone wrong are basically my favourite thing to write about. Um, <gasps> oh my goodness, the, the food poisoning and standard deviation. Is... Oh yeah, that was really fun. I, I don't know, like my husband used to be a diplomat and we had, we went to like three or four dinner parties a week and it was really traumatising because... Normally, I like to like be in my pajamas by like 5.30. So having to go out all the time and, you know, interact with people. And just dinner parties are so weird that you sit by somebody for a whole meal. And what do you talk about? I don't know. They're, they're fascinating to me in a traumatizing sort of way. How, how does a person become a diplomat? Is it, does it mean he's really a spy? He really is a spy, but um, during the dinner, the the diplomat part of our lives, he was sort of working as a diplomat, but he was still a spy. I mean, when I first met him, he was undercover, and that all eventually changed. But there was there was a very heavy dinner party segment of our lives. So a sort of a forced audra period of. Intense, intense socialising. A classic extrovert like Audra. I don't think I've ever met an Audra. I have a friend who's who's very much like Audra. She's not, she has way more of a filter. Um, but she just really likes to talk to everybody. She's interested in everyone, which I think is such an admirable quality. And such a genius thing to bring 
to literature, such a, a high value character? Well, I think when I was writing her, my own filter disintegrated. And I think I started talking a lot more to people who were not, you know, necessarily like interested. I remember it was during the writing of Standard Deviation that my mother had to have oral surgery and my mother has dementia and the oral surgeon was so kind and so respectful and and so caring with her and with us. And later when my mom and the nurse and I, and my mom was in recovery, and I said to the nurse, you know, that I thought I might be in love with the surgeon. And she looked really scared. And I was like, I don't mean romantic love. I don't, you know, I was like, I am happily married. I don't want to date him. And she was like, yeah, I'm sure. And I'm like, you know, my husband is a wonderful person. Like, I just couldn't stop talking. And I think we're probably blacklisted at that <laughs> surgeon's thing now. And there were there were many instances where I, I, I think writing about Audra was sort of affecting me. And it was also during that period where my older son asked me to write a letter to his teacher about something. An, an email. And I was like, okay. And then Angus was like, and don't try to be funny. I was like, <laughs> wow. I wonder where that came from. Um, but of course, I'm sure whatever I wrote, I tried to be funny in it. I think that's, you know, we're talking about the confidence of Stephen King and other writers and stuff. And I think my insecurity is I'm always afraid if people aren't going to read if it's not funny. So I make a joke like, in every paragraph. If you could just be assured that, you know, you could write, you could be as serious as you wanted and it would be great and wonderful and everyone would, you know, adore it and applaud it, would you want to write your own Silence of the Lambs? Probably not. I mean, the the jokes are probably the thing that I enjoy writing the most and they're often the first things that come to me. The serious parts and the sad parts are not the hardest parts. They're They're pretty easy too. But I do find the act of like moving everybody on stage and describing what's happening, that that takes the most actual physical or mental labor for me. Logistics of of the scene, the sort of making yeah. sure, oh, you've got this person speaking, do I need to bring them in? Someone's come through a door, did I put a window where the door is? Exactly, exactly. But maybe all writers struggle with that, but I don't think so. I think some people see it very clearly. I do think it's very common for for authors to skip a step and suddenly the editor will be like, a minute ago they were in the car and the author is like, well, yeah, but they parked it and they got out. I just didn't put that, <laughs> I didn't put that in there because I know it happened. I think that's a very, very common thing, but it is kind of daunting when you're writing. It's obviously early morning rise that takes place. You know, it spans, um, how many years does it span? But it's a... 17, 17 years. When I read my proof, I was so excited about it anyway and extra excited when I opened it up and it was starting in 2002 or something. Mm -hmm. about. And yeah. it's like, yes, 2002, that's where I want to be, not 2020. <laughs> well, originally when I, I wrote, I finished the novel in 2019, but I knew it would come out later. So I had it end in 2020 because I'm like, oh, every year is basically like every other year. Like, what's it going to matter? And then 2020 happened and I was like, you know, let's just shift it all <laughs> back a year. 
Um, I didn't originally plan on it covering so much time. I felt the passage of time between the events in Jane's life, it was important sometimes that there be two or three or even four years where she was living and we just weren't seeing it. So the structure sort of grew out of that. And I was wondering if there are any books, possibly novels, but not necessarily, where you have a sort of bit of a secret fan fiction relationship with, where maybe you've thought about other things that might be happening off page. Well, one of my favourite books is Gone with the Wind. I think every time I reread it, I learn some new detail about Scarlet. And then sometimes I do sort of fill in things that, that the book doesn't cover. I imagine how they went. I don't know. There, I, I think that's sort of the mark of a good book is that you think about what went on like like it's a real thing, like it's a real event. It's like how everybody, including me, really likes to watch true crime and think about true crime and what might have actually happened. And I think that really powerful literature is the same way. You want to you wanna replay it in your mind and sort of figure out how and why it happened. Maybe it's not quite the same. I was thinking about um, Tender is the Night, which is um, oh, yeah. one of my most favourite books. And how what I really would like is um, is more beach, more Dick and Nicole before the murder. Just, you know, love everyone sort of, you know, in their jewels, in the Saint-Tropez sunshine, you know, getting drunk and having a grand old time without any um, any dead bodies turning up. If you just have an extra, extra fortnight of that, I'd really enjoy that. Well, and I think in... In The Great Gatsby, you want to see more of Gatsby and Daisy's actual affair and what sort of promises she actually makes him and what part he assumes. But you really don't see much of it because it's told from Nick's point of view. It's true. And I don't know, um, obviously it's genius, but it's a bit of a cheat because I do. It's a little bit like um, Anna Karenina and um, Mm. Vronsky, where. There's a lot that's compelling about the novel, but really not the love story. You, you know, the love story and wanting the yearning and to be swept away and to really, really believe in it. And I think when you hold it up to the light, you think, no, <laughs> leaving one awful man and going off with another awful man. <laughs> um, can I tell you one funny story that I thought of when I was reading the questions? I would love that. Please do. When I first met my husband my, his children, now my stepchildren, were, I think, 12 and 14. And I'm very bossy about what other people read. I always feel like I know the perfect book for them and they're going to love it. And, you know, I sort of hooked my stepson on Stephen King. And that's always been like our big thing that we share. And I gave my stepdaughter a book by Norma Klein called Beginner's Love. And I just remembered that I really liked it when I was a teenager. I didn't sort of, you know, flip through the whole book in my mind as to what was in it, but I was like, you'll love it. And so she took it back to boarding school and it has this very, very explicit oral sex scene in it, which she read. And then she shared it with like basically every other girl at boarding school until somebody got caught with it. And then the boarding school called my husband and they read him the super graphic scene over the phone and said, like, do you think this is appropriate? And, 
you know, I was just like, but really, she liked she likes reading now. So <laughs> I think we should focus on the positive here of like, this has opened up the world of books for her. But you know, it really just like, cemented my reputation as sort of a ninny, I guess. Oh, that's brilliant, because I always want to know, like, what was the book that you got caught with at school? I didn't know you were the pusher. Yeah. Ooh, I am. My husband was, like, just super cool about it. He was like, oh, well, it happens. I mean, I would be so traumatized that I would pull my child out of the boarding school and, like, never go there again. But he's much, he's made of sterner stuff. Oh, I bet she was so popular after that. Don't you think? Um, I was also going to talk about Judy Bloom and how much I love her. And do you like Judy Bloom? I love Judy Bloom. My mom was like, I don't know, I guess she didn't talk to other moms about what her kids could read because like all my friends weren't allowed to read Judy Bloom until they were like 12 or something. But my mom was like, if you want a book, I'll buy it for you. So I've read all the Judy Blooms. But maybe about five years ago, I was at a publishing party and she was there. <gasps> and I I got kind of drunk. And then I went up to her and was like, you mean so much to me. I love you. And she was so gracious and so kind. But she was actually leaving the party. And I followed her out onto the sidewalk. And she's like getting in a cab. And I'm still there going, I love you. <laughs> I love you more than other people do. You you mean the world to me. And she's like rolling up the window of the cab being like, thank you. I mean, she never was less than gracious, but I'm like, wow. So that's Judy Bloom's memory of me, of being this like sobbing drunk woman on the sidewalk. She will never have any doubt how much those <laughs> books meant to you. And I don't see how you could have done anything else. I think I just weep. We've been trying are very hard to um keep we've, we've said we'll go to florida but we're one day we're hoping maybe for a hundredth episode oh mm. but we, can you remember which one you read first was it forever no the first one was then again maybe i won't with the oh, binoculars i yeah. love that i think she's so good on class because my memory serves then again maybe i won't do they move to Long yeah. Island from, is it somewhere, Brooklyn, but maybe... New Jersey. Yes. But yeah, like the father is, he um, he invents something. So they go from him being like a factory worker to him being an executive. And they get a big house. And there's a lot of class consciousness in that. But all her books are, once again, we're talking about confidence here. Because she writes about kids growing up in New York City. I never doubted for a minute that that's what it was like to grow up in New York City. And the same with the New Jersey book. I mean, in terms of world building and character creation, she just she just can't be beat. I think my all-time favourite is Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Because oh, that, sure. Because we've yeah. all had that that very, I can't remember her name, the very glamorous popular friend with it. Does she have, is it the kidney-shaped dressing Nancy. table? With the, yes. And that friend who also knows everything about everyone and was would never occur to Nancy that it's not, it's not always her business to know. And it's also that when they're learning square dancing, Nancy gets partnered with the cutest guy in the class and then the teacher announces this like, 
random, like you have to switch partners and Nancy almost starts crying. I don't know. It's such a great book. I'm going to go read it. Me too. I'm talking, isn't it? We can text each other. We can live tweet each other about now I'm at this part and now I'm at this part. Be the most, shall we do it? Shall we? When the world is sort of moving again, let's go to Florida. We won't tell Gigi Blue we're coming. (laughs) We'll get one. She'll be like, she'll be like, there's that drunk bird. Yeah. Be Um, the most fun. We can wear sweaters made expressly for us by grandma. (laughs) I was also going to talk about V.C. Andrews. Oh, yes. And Flowers in the Attic, which is like an awesome book. People are hard on it for reasons I don't understand. It's the most amazing book in history. When did you first read it? I first read it when I was like 11. And I hid it from my parents. Like I read it when they were out of the room or I put it in some other sort of books cover. But I didn't even need to bother to do that because my parents just would have been like, she's reading a book about flowers. They just sort of never, they were very pro-reading. Everybody read a lot, but there wasn't a lot of concern about like whether you were reading something suitable. Can you remember how you got hold of it, uh, where your copy came from? Yeah, my, my cousin gave it to me. So, and she was even younger than I am. So, but the funny thing is that I know you said that a lot of people talk about that being the the most unsuitable book that they read or that they knew they shouldn't be reading. But I actually gave it to my mom decades later. So I was maybe 30 and my mom was 60 and she said she'd never read it. And I was like, oh, you need to read it. And so I gave it to her and she was like so disturbed not by the sex part but like she told me that that she could only read like she could only read it while my dad was awake that when he was asleep she felt too scared to read flowers in the attic and like the grandmother basically just scared the shit out of her and so it's interesting to me that we had this sort of role reversal I love that you gave it to your mum and that she you know as a an adult reader found it as disturbing as possibly more disturbing than you did when you were 11. I reread that book quite a bit trying to figure out like when the mother knew that her father knew about her children. I just I'm obsessed with it and I know that V.C. Andrews died and the rest of the books don't interest me because they weren't written by her but Flowers in the Attic is amazing. Because that's a confidence thing, isn't it? And there's no one there really going, is. hold on. Well, no one's going to be saying, hold on, when did they get out of the car? Because they're just in an attic the whole time. <laughs> but there are so many leaps and weird things and you do just go with it all the way. The voice is just very, it is the confidence thing again. I don't think we're going to find a writer that we're like, she's not very confident. I wonder if a lack of confidence in life makes a person more determined to be confident on the page. Oh, I wonder. Um, I was also going to tell you this last story, and then I'll let you go, is that one of the questions is about transformative childhood reads. And I read The Thorn Birds, I think when I was 12. And my parents had this painting over our fireplace that was like this black and white stark painting of a 
tree with no leaves and it had black birds sitting in it. And I remember thinking like, this is the collision of art and literature. Is <laughs> I'm reading the thorn birds in the same room where this is the painting. And I just honestly felt like it would, there would be no topping it ever, that that would be, you know, that that was like as good as it gets. That is magnificent. I could see Jane Campion <laughs> organizing <laughs> such a scene. Did you, what did you think of the Thornbirds? Well, I remember it was one of the first books for adults that I read. Like I read YA for a really long time. And then, you know, there were some other books that, but I remember being, I think that my mom got the Thornbirds as part of like a book of the month club. And I remember I started reading it and it made total sense. I, for some reason, I thought it was going to be like impenetrable because I wasn't an adult person reading an adult book. Um, so it really was when a, a realization that like, wow, I, I can under, you know, as long as you can read, you can basically understand anything. But you know, the, the girl in it is pretty young. So well, it starts out when she's young. There's a lot about clothes. It's kind of very teen friendly in its way. I think that a lot about V.C. Andrews, where on the one hand, everyone reads those books too young, but also they are made for, you know, sort of a YA crowd, I think. Those those are the details that young readers really respond to. And I still respond to at 36, let's be real. Yeah. But I do yeah, that's a very powerful image of you with the thorn birds, <laughs> the painting going, This is it. <laughs> I've arrived. Well, actually when my parents sold their house a few years ago, my dad was like, What do you want? And I was like, I want that painting. So I still have it. It hangs in my house to remind me. I think I need to acquire my own before I read The Thornbirds, <laughs> which I will. I'll take a picture and send it to you. Thank you so much. I will somehow project it on the wall. Catherine, it has been such a pleasure. I can't thank you enough. I have just loved this. And I sincerely hope we can do it in real life one day, with or without Judy Bloom. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. Huge thanks to Catherine. Early Morning Riser is published by Fourth Estate and it's a true joy and delight. There is no one I wouldn't recommend it to. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and thanks so much to everyone who's left a five-star review. It helps other people to discover us and new books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Catherine at acast.com booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. For now, I leave you with this from Muriel Spark. If you want to concentrate deeply on some problem and especially some piece of writing or paperwork, you should acquire a cat. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.